Welcome to episode 166 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Um, my as seen on Instagram this week is a little like SLP adjacent. It's not specifically for <laughs> SLPs, but uh, there's a lot of good things happening over on um, this Instagram page. If you haven't heard of Sharon Says So, she's kind of been labeled um, US, the U.S. the government teacher for the people, I think is what they kind of call her. But um, a couple interesting things is right now she is running a campaign for... Um, teacher grants so people can go to her and donate they can also go and apply for a teacher grant so if you're having something you know where maybe you want some telepractice equipment for a school that you're working at or the or some aac equipment you could go and apply for one of those teacher grants but she also has a podcast uh called here's where it gets interesting that kind of goes through um, a lot of history or less known history and she does some like series that she'll do that's on one topic so she just finished up a series in june um that was called taken native boarding schools in america and it i was on a long drive up to see some family and listen to the whole series and it was super interesting i actually grew up somewhere where we still could see the remnants of the Indian school, as it was called. Um, there's still a thing we do in Utah is we put uh, letters of the school up on the mountains above the school. There's still an eye on the mountain above the school, which I recently found out from a news article that it's actually the alumni that go back and paint it every year. So there's mm. definitely some people, some few people had positive experiences, but um, I really wish that I had listened to it before this last school year when I worked with a large population of uh, Native American children in the school that I was working at. But it was just a really interesting deep dive into the history of our education. And I think it really applies to not just how we have to honor like people who are indigenous or are who are native american and are in our inner education system but my more minorities in general and thinking about how their experience in this country and in their history and in intergenerational trauma is different from our own so it was just as someone who works in the schools and with children was really enlightening to me so i would highly suggest listening to that series oh that that's great i'm going to have to look that one up cuz yeah I love history, and, I, and I'm somewhat familiar with the story, but uh, I would love to do a deeper dive into it and, and to learn more about how that happened. And uh, I was just hearing something the other day about how you know the children were taken. Usually, uh, families weren't giving much of a choice, and their children yeah. were taken, and then putting these. Really, they were institutions, right? To try to erase. The culture and they couldn't yep. speak in their native languages and you know yeah. they had to dress uh differently and you know yeah couldn't couldn't embrace anything in terms of their cultures yep it's, it was really interesting my mom remembers their high school playing against the indian school in sports mm-hmm. and that there were some kids that and families that she grew up with that had um foster children that were mm-hmm. native american which 
now there's been an act that it's there's a priority for Native American children to be placed with Native American families in That's the right. foster care syndrome system, but there's still like a way disproportionate number of children from Native American families in that system. So, and I live, you know, I still live somewhere where there's, I'm surrounded by right. um, reservations and things like that. I had a good friend that they lived in the Monument Valley area and the high school that my friend's husband taught at had a sweat lodge for the high school because they had such a high Native American population. So I'm hoping that we see, you know, are seeing more of that honoring culture, including culture and not, not erasing it. It was terrible. Well, I agree. And I think we're at a, you know, an inflection point in our society and what's going on, you know, with our politics. And, you know, we as a country need to recognize that we are, our country is built on diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly uh, Native Americans who were here before we were. <laughs> right. Right. You know, we need to honor them and their culture and not try to subjugate, uh, can't talk today. Uh, not try to limit them at all or to downplay their culture in any way. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and recognize that the strength that we have as a country is recognizing our diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we seem to be moving away from that ideal. And I yeah. think we need yeah. to uh, really rethink that and, and, move away from some of the policies that we're seeing being enacted, especially in some states where um, people are being singled out and frankly discriminated against. And that's right. something that we need to do a better job with. Right. That was in another one of her podcasts, someone talked about that we kind of like a lot of times see progress in the United States is linear, that we're always getting better and things like that. But that mm-hmm. there's definitely been, pitfalls in our history where we took a step backwards and that they kind of see that currently. And so that we need to know that history. So we avoid those things. I agree 100%. I think, you know, this quest to always try to have a more perfect union. I think we need to have concerted effort to keep that ideal front and center that we're always striving for a more perfect union yeah. that is inclusive, that is yeah. supportive, not restrictive. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I know if they would leave it up to you and me, Kim, <laughs> we could solve these problems and yes. be done with it. Yes. Um, but on the, sh- on the show today, on the episode, we have Hannah Douglas, who is a doctoral student at the University of Kentucky. Uh, she happens to be a speech-language pathologist, and she is doing some research in telepractice and looking at e-helpers and uh, some of the competencies that um, she found in her research. So I'm really excited to speak with her. Well, Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Can you uh, share more about your background? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I am a speech-language pathologist. I graduated in 2018 with my master's degree, um, and I am a doctoral candidate right now at the University of Kentucky. Awesome. Great. So what led you to become 
a speech language pathologist? Um, so I started out in a bachelor's program, um, studying women and gender studies. So mm-hmm. <laughs> not really related to speech therapy at all. But um, while I was getting that degree, I applied for a part-time job at a, a company that does tutoring for um, children with severe dyslexia. And so they use the Linda Mood Bell system, um, which is an Orton-Gillingham type of program for literacy. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I was like, I wish I could do this full time. <laughs> yeah. um, I really, really liked it. I've always loved reading and stories and writing um, and just really loved applying that to help children who are really struggling. Um And so as part of my training and that job, um, we had to practice all of our skills on our family members. And my mom is a physical therapist, a pediatric physical therapist. And I was practicing all my things with her. And she mentioned that it, it sounded a lot like what a speech therapist does that she works with. So that got me interested. I was like, oh, speech therapy. <laughs> I could do that. Um, as a profession, because I was kind of um, not sure what to do with my bachelor's degree in women and gender studies. So that's how I got started on the path. Um, And then I applied to University of Kentucky's prerequisite program so that I could just do um, the prereqs and the master's degree all in, in one go. Great. Awesome. And so did you first get exposed to telepractice in grad school? Yes, yes. So um, I had a language class with Dr. Johnny and Loman, and she is the one who um, started talking about it to us in that class. Um, and then partway through my program, she got a grant to train Uh, graduate students in the use of telepractice. Um, So I applied for a place in her program um, and just really was in awe of all of the opportunities that you can have with telepractice. Um, And so I also decided I want to do a master's thesis and work with on her on the research side of things with telepractice. So that's kind of how I got into that. I owe it all to Dr. Loman. Either you owe it all or you blame her. One or the, reason, <laughs> one, one or the other, right? Yeah. I, I understand. I understand. Yeah. And sometimes so, in the yeah. doctoral program, I go back and forth. On <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, I've been there. I've been there. Um, and so uh, with your interest in telepractice, um, You've gotten into several different areas in reading your bio. Let's let's talk about some of those things, some of those interest areas. One was sure. you were uh, developing some competencies, right? Yes. Yeah, that was actually my master's thesis project was working on um, compiling a list of competencies for the e-helper 
um, because we noticed that in the ASHA guidelines for telepractice, of course, pre-pandemic and everything, so they were a lot different than they are now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But we noticed that they said, you know, for this e-helper position, the speech therapist should be in charge of training this person. But then what? how, how do we train this person? (laughs) You know, that was kind of like the end of it. They're like, you should train them, but that's, we're not going to provide anything else or, and I couldn't find, we couldn't find anything else hardly that provided any sort of starting place for, for SLPs. So that's kind of where that project came to be. Um, so yeah, it's a published paper now. Anybody can search that and find our list of competencies. Um, and we had an expert panel that helped us put those together and gave us feedback on those. Mm-hmm. So hopefully people are finding it useful. <laughs> so let's let's talk about some of the competencies that you you discovered, if you don't mind. Sure. And, and just what what were some of the key things you think uh or, or key competencies, knowledge, and skills that an e-helper needs to have uh, to be successful? Sure. So we divided the competencies up into several different areas, um, kind of just we did a qualitative type of analysis on the competencies we came up with, and that's kind of how we grouped them together. Um So there were several on knowledge of policies and procedures uh, specific to telepractice and emergency protocols that people felt were important. Um, And obviously, technical skills were a really big one, knowing how to turn things on and off and all of the things that you need to know how to do with regards to the technology. Troubleshooting was another big one. Um, behavior management. Um, we also had a group of um, like interpersonal type of skills that were more soft skills related to that, um, like being a champion for telepractice, being able to be a liaison between the SLP and the teachers and the school um, and things like that. Um, I think those are those are some of the biggest ones that we, had. That's great. Is there any one area that you found in your research or just through your own experience that's kind of the biggest one that we're lacking when we think about e-helpers and their training? Um, can you clarify your question? What of the, by... of the ones you mentioned or anything, like what do you feel like is the biggest problem that a lot of people have with their oh. e-helpers? The biggest problem. Um, I would say just having an evil probably. <laughs> at this point. Uh, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> like getting the e-helper and getting a consistent one seems like honestly one of the biggest issues. And then training them is a whole a whole other ball game, I think. Yeah. So the, we kind of started out with that project. And then as we're trying to do follow-up research on that, like kind of realizing that we maybe needed to take a few steps back and look at like, are people using e-helpers? Do they right. have them consistently? 
um, like what are barriers to getting them and things like that. So that's what I've been working on in my doctoral research. That's great. That's great. I have experienced the no e-helper or the like, today's the music teacher is your (laughs) e-helper. Tomorrow it will be the librarian. Sometimes you just have to call the secretary and that's kind of your (laughs) e-helper, but she's not actually in the room. (laughs) I've had the whole range to one that I've had that was really, really good. And I had spent the whole year trying to talk her into going back to get her (laughs) degree in speech therapy because she was so intuitive about the things that she needed to do. So I've had the range. So I would agree with you. The, The worst is when you don't have one at all yeah there's just I think that's probably the number one like biggest question for me that I feel like I'm trying to answer with the research is like who are the e-helpers who should they be what kind of role is it like just trying to basically define the role there still isn't really a definition there's not a consistent term i've encountered so many different terms for the person that makes it really hard to even do research on them. yes right. so yeah i think we're still at, at the beginning stages of of research in this particular area certainly yep and what was the term, the presenter? Is that right? The um... There's so many. I've heard telepresenter. Telepresenter. Yeah, telepresenter. Oh, a, a new one that I heard this last year was, um, what was it? Learning coach, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> yep, I've heard learning coach. I've, um, I, one of the companies I worked for, it's the primary support person or PSP. Yeah, yeah I've heard that one from Presence. I think yep. he uses mm-hmm. that term. Yep. Yeah, e helper, facilitator, telefacilitator, paraprofessional. <laughs> and then it's like some people tell me that the schools just call them like, speech paras or like the speech person or the speech assistant and it's like well are they really a speech (laughs) I know well that's what yeah I think we got into that um a couple weeks ago too that I was like okay you're calling this person a speech therapy assistant but that is a like (laughs) licensed position so they're more the assistant to the speech right yes exactly Yeah. Yeah, yeah the terminology is a huge barrier for sure and yeah, it's so different depending on the telepractice company or the schools, and it might be different, you know, even within those two things. Yeah. So do you see any like solution or incentive or guidelines that we need to put in place to kind of like, how do we get schools to know that they can't just sit a kid in front of the computer and be like, oh, they have a speech therapist now, you know, call us if you need us that the benefits of someone actually being there on the other side. Yeah, I definitely think we need some sort of guidelines in place. I think to get there is probably going to be a really slow road because Mm -hmm. we don't have any research. So it's kind of hard to go to schools and say, we need this person because if we don't have them, then our sessions are not going to be as effective do I have anything to actually show you that? No, it's just like, I'm just telling you that. Yeah. (laughs) So I feel like if we had more research showing the efficacy of sessions with trained facilitators versus 
just, you know, like random music teachers and whatever, (laughs) then I think schools would be more willing to see the value and hopefully some sort of accrediting body or, you know, national organization would be willing to, to put together some sort of certificate or at least guidelines like Asha says, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Are you working on that, Todd? Getting ideas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just wrote that down. Hmm. Series of courses or webinars to train. Yeah, that's definitely Mm -hmm. one of one of would be one of my career goals for sure, because I've already been working on on a few prototypes of trainings just from the um, things that I've learned and the courses that I've taken in my doctoral program have been uh, really focused on developing training and things like that. So that's that's on my list, too. We should make that happen. Yes, we should. <laughs> we should just so make we, the certificate. <laughs> yeah, we should make that happen. We can do it. We have the technology. We can make it happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I know there are a couple of like training programs. I think Thomas Jefferson University has mm-hmm. one for medical. And it's like, yeah, I don't, that's still a problem because then it's like, I have the certificate, but then what does that mean? Like, right. You know, so I think there still needs to be some sort of guidelines from someone that says, if you're certified, here's what that means. Here's what you need to have, you know. Right. So will we get there? I don't know. We don't even have that for speech therapists in telepractice, really. So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. We don't have the competencies for that for, for, for us, for SLPs. Right, right. So, yeah. A lot of work to be done. <laughs> a lot of work, that's for sure. So um, what are you going to continue this focus with your doctoral work and just expand or, or what direction are you going to go in with your studies? Your- um, well, I'm in my fourth year, so I'm like wrapping up on my studies. Oh. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I'm on the tail end of of my studies. I'm in the writing phase now. So oh, good. Yeah. So that is the direction that I ended up going in um, for most of my studies. When the pandemic happened, I was only in my second semester. So that kind of threw a wrench in things a little bit um, because my research interest was in the school setting and of course everyone left the school setting (laughs) (laughs) right to go and do home-based therapy which you know it was it was what it was and we had to do that um but it definitely delayed my data collection for one of my studies so I ended up doing a systematic review on clinician acceptance of telehealth Mm -hmm. um so that was a an interesting process as a researcher. <laughs> and that was that acceptance like during COVID, before COVID, after COVID, all mm-hmm. of the above? <laughs> before. Yeah. Okay. Because I had started that paper in the search process in like January of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then like the pan like there was whisperings of the pandemic. I was like, oh, that probably, you know, won't be here for <laughs> however a year. Years like, down the road. Yeah, <laughs> 
that's not going to affect us for a while. And then it was like March came and I was in the middle of doing my search and I was like, oh no, what am I going to do now? I'm sure all this research is going to come out. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I decided to focus only on pre-pandemic acceptance. Um, But the flip side of that is that now we have a good starting place for comparison. It's a good baseline. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is is also out there now. I got published this year, so that's in uh, Asha Perspectives Journal. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. There's been so much research that's come out since COVID. I don't. Whoever does the follow up study is going to have a <laughs> lot to sift through. Yeah, it's it's been amazing, really. I, I think. Yeah. In some ways, COVID has been the best thing for telepractice, but also the worst thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's been yeah. a mixed bag. It's yes. it's certainly shown that it's possible to use telepractice to deliver all these services. But then at the same time, a lot of people, you know, just have a bad taste in their mouth about having to, you know, being forced to do it. Yeah. So I would totally agree with that. And it's been interesting now that some time has passed to see um, if people totally go back to what they were doing before. Are they still incorporating a little bit of telepractice? Because I think a lot of people were really optimistic and like, oh, now everyone's doing telepractice and uh, like everything has changed. And it is changed, but I don't think it's changed really as much as a lot of people hoped it might change. Right. Because there is, I think, some research coming out of Australia that they have a line graph of, like, number of telehealth visits. And after things started going back to normal, just plummeted right back down (laughs) to, it was still a little bit higher than pre-pandemic, but not very much higher. So So what were some of the attitudes that you found during that study and how do you think they've changed? Um, so I actually did a metasynthesis. It was a systematic review and metasynthesis, um, of qualitative studies. So it is ended up being a little bit broader than just, um, you know, clinician acceptance, Mm -hmm. but, um, some of the areas that people were really, uh, concerned about or seem to affect whether or not they decided to go into telepractice um, were that the communication was very different with their patients and providers there. Um, And some of it was good and some of it was bad. Like some people mentioned that it was better because they were able to communicate with an interdisciplinary team more easily since everyone was virtual. Um, And then there was also uh, barriers a lot of the times trying to contact people at the school and not being able to physically be there and things like that. Yeah. the lack of education and training was another really big area that seemed to really have an impact on um, clinicians' confidence and sort of like self-efficacy to be able to do that. So that was a really big area. Um, they want to, they gave a lot of suggestions on the sort of um, education and training that they wanted um, and would have liked to have had. Um, let's see what else. 
They mentioned safety and engagement in the telepractice environment was another area of really big consideration. Um, They were concerned about not being able to physically be there or physically touch their patients um, because I did do an interdisciplinary study. So it included occupational and physical therapy. Mm. Um, So they were very concerned about that. I think a little bit more than SLPs are since we're not so hands-on as, as some of the things that they do. Um, but still speech uh, pathologists were also concerned about, you know, having someone there to be able, especially with kids, um, to be able to keep them on task. And what if there's a fire drill or what if there's an evacuation, you know, what are they going to do? Um, so that sort of thing. Um, and then another component was, uh, technical support was a huge, uh, area that people talked about not wanting to be responsible for all of the technical support since it adds on to their, their workload and they Mm -hmm. didn't want to be responsible for all of that. Um, so I think I think those were some of the biggest areas. People wanted a lot of guidance on policies and procedures, um, technical assistance, education and training, therapy materials, things like that. And most of the studies were with people who had never done tele- telehealth either. So I will say that also seemed to have an effect on their view of it, obviously. Um, So that's another consideration there. Yeah. But I'm hearing a lot of the issues that you found that I'm, I'm guessing at least what I've seen are still ongoing (laughs) that haven't been something that, you know, we learned with experience and now we're good that we've all had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's still a lot of of the same problems that need to get solved um, for sure. Education and training definitely being one of the top ones, I think. Um, But yeah, even policies and procedures, I think a lot of people have trouble with. I think ASHA did do a good job during the pandemic trying to beef up that part of their guidelines. Um, But it's still hard, I think, unless you're working for a a bigger company that probably provides some of that for you. Very true. So, Hannah, with all the work you've been doing, let's say, let's project out five years. Where where do you think we're going to be as as speech-language pathologists in telepractice? What do you think is going to happen? That's an interesting question. Um, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I hope we're better off than we are right now. I hope that we um, work on some of these areas and develop um, education and training. I hope to see ASHA implement some, some new guidelines or standards for incorporating some of these things into like graduate programs um, and things like that, but I obviously don't have a crystal ball, (laughs) but I hope, I hope we're better off. I think more people are definitely doing it now. 
than before the pandemic. So I think there's a, there will be a higher demand for these things to improve now versus before it was kind of just like, well, there's only, you know, like what, not very many people were doing it before. So there's not a lot of motivation to, (laughs) to do any of these things. So hopefully that, that increase gives some momentum to some of these problems. Sure. Well, if just the number of jobs being posted by online companies, telehealth, telepractice companies, it is just amazing to me. It's just constant that they're constantly looking for people. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely the need uh, for people everywhere. It's, it's, yeah. So I, I agree with everything you just said. And I think one of the key things uh, is getting more training at the pre-service level. So before, like you've experienced in your master's program, we have that here at Akron uh, doing something similar. Students need to um, be trained for the world they're going to be working in. And obviously, I think, as as you do and and, and Kim, we're going to see more and more of this. It's going to be more and more integrated, I think, going forward. And we've got to train students in how to use technology and uh, telepractice being one of those technologies that they need to be really comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's going to become to where they're going to encounter it in their practicums and they need to be they need to have some sort of foundation to go off of. I agree. Right. Well, Hannah, I think it's time for our most important segment of our podcast. Oh, gosh. And you know what that is? <laughs> the questions. Le- the questions. <laughs> our <laughs> moment of Zen. Yes. <laughs> So we have three different lists. Which list would you like? A, B, or C? Uh, I'll go with A. List A. Okay. What's the most used app on your phone? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say right now is probably the baby tracker app that I <laughs> <laughs> to track all of my babies, like feeding and sleeping and all that stuff. Um, but besides that, I use Instagram a lot. Um, that's probably one of my most used apps. And then probably Amazon, <laughs> Amazon a lot. <laughs> that's what that's, um, you know, they, you try to convince people that you're going to save a lot of money by breastfeeding and then you end up shopping on Amazon. <laughs> probably yeah. comes out about even, at least that's how I was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's still a lot of costs associated with it for sure. Lactation (laughs) consultants, everything else. Yeah. Um, Next question is What was the last TV show or movie that you streamed? Ooh, not very many since I. (laughs) Okay, let me think. I think the last TV show that I watched um, was Modern Family and The Office. Those are ones that I watch um, on repeat. So. I was going to say, like they both. Reese. Yeah. Modern Family is one that I always watched if it was on, but haven't seen the whole thing and I've just started it. 
really it's, good. It's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. I like to just have them on in the background a lot of time. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, what's a favorite book? A favorite book? Mm, I'm a huge fantasy sci-fi nerd, so <laughs> nice. I have a lot of those type of books on my favorite list. The Harry Potter is probably like my original favorite <laughs> book. Um, but I also uh, have really liked uh, Throne of Glass. Uh, has probably been my newer favorite series. Nice. Very good. Um, if you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to do, what would it be? Ooh, a law or behavior. That's interesting. Well, behavior, I think, would be pretty easy. I think everyone should have to practice empathy for sure. I think uh, a lot of people are lacking empathy these days, and it's it's sad to see that. And I think our world would be a lot better off if people had more stopped and had a little more empathy for everybody's situation. Everybody's got something going on and it's hard not to take it out on undeserving people. So yeah, I think having empathy would be nice if everyone did that. Yeah. I I think that's, that's wonderful. I agree a hundred percent. Next question is, who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Hmm. Let's see. Dead or alive? Um, I would probably say um my husband's mom would be someone I would want to meet. She passed away when he was in middle school, so I never mm-hmm. got to meet her and um, just hearing everyone talk about her um, would really like to meet her and have dinner with her for sure. That's a good one. That's great. Um, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? And you can define scary in any way you want. Definitely having a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's our number one answer. Most, yeah, most common answer. <laughs> I would say children. I, you should add on having a child while doing a doctor. That's go. true. That's true. I should definitely add that on. That's definitely part of it. Yeah. But yeah, um, I wasn't sure about having kids for a long time, but I we decided that's something we wanted to do and. I'm not getting any younger, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about having kids either, and I have two adults. <laughs> Still on the fence about it. Still on the fence. Still on the fence. Uh, did I do the right thing or not? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I feel like you're always asking that of yourself as a parent. Am I doing the right thing? It's hard to know. That's the I, scary part. <laughs> I used to have nightmares, a recurring nightmare when I was in my master's program that I had a baby and I was so busy that I couldn't remember the baby's name. Oh, no. <laughs> my recurring nightmare is like forgetting to do things and like or being late for something. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. last night, I had a dream that I missed the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, Kim, we are in people's dreams now. That's yes. Whoa. You're the first to admit that. That's that's crazy. Uh, People are dreaming about us. Wow. Okay. Um, 
So you said having children. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where is the most exotic or farthest place you've been? Um, the furthest place I've been is Japan. Um, I, we did a two week trip there and kind of bounced around the country. We went to like a very rural area at first, and then we went to Osaka and then we finished in Tokyo. So it was the trip of a lifetime, a really awesome trip. I loved it. That's awesome. I've, yeah, I've always wanted to go to Japan. It's amazing. You definitely should. I, I saw my bucket list. Um, if you didn't choose your current profession, what would you like to try? Oh, probably an author of like children's or young adult books. That was all, always the consideration of mine. So it might be something I still do later, later mm-hmm. in life. <laughs> But yeah, I love writing. Yeah, I've always thought that we need some more people who have that like good, no narrative structure and all of that to be writing more children's books. So sure. I'm all for that. Um, what is a pet peeve that you have? Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> I get irritated. <laughs> so, so let's just focus on your husband. What's your oh, pet peeve? About- <laughs> Just <laughs> might kidding. be listening to this. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, a pet peeve. Oh, here's one that happens to me pretty frequently. I don't like when I go into a public place, whether it's like a restaurant or a movie theater or a beach or whatever, somewhere in public space. And there is plenty of room all around, plenty of places to sit and someone, and I sit somewhere and someone else comes in and sits very close to me when there's a ton of space. I don't like that. (laughs) It's like, what are you doing? Get away from me. Yeah. Especially in the movie theaters, I'll like strategically pick my seat. There's like no one else in there. And then someone sits right behind me. Why? (laughs) <laughs> I I hate that as well. Yep. It drives me nuts. That's a good one. Um last question. Uh if heaven exists, what do you what do you want to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm an atheist, so interesting question for me on two, or two levels. What do you want to the universe to tell you when you <laughs> cross over <laughs> when you transition? Well, yeah, when when I reach the afterlife or if there is one, who knows? Um, I would like to know that I I made an, a positive impact on people or on the world, that I changed things for the better. That's so. awesome. <laughs> that's great. That's that's what all of us should strive to try to do is, you know, Leave us leave the place a little bit better than when we and wait a minute. What was I trying to say? We leave it a little better than we found it. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. So Hannah, how can people reach out to you if they want to follow your work uh, or just be in touch or ask questions? How can they reach you? Um, they can send me an email. It is Hannah dot Douglas with two S's 
at uky.edu. Um, that's probably the main way, or you can look me up on LinkedIn. I try to post some things, um, with my research on my LinkedIn. Um, those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. I do have a Twitter, but that's kind of, I don't know <laughs> what's happening with Twitter right now. So I haven't been yeah. keeping up with that very much. I think we've all left Twitter. <laughs> Did, did it get renamed like this week? It's, it's just the X. X. It's X now. It's whatever that means. Yeah. Right. There won't be a bird soon either. I don't think. Yeah. It's... No more <laughs> tweets. It's a X. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that is. Well, Hannah, thank you for joining us and good luck with your, your dissertation and writing everything up and, uh, and uh, come back and give us an update in the next few months and yes, check in with us. Thank you so much for yeah, having for sure. me. Hopefully I'll be defending next semester. So I would love to come back. That'd be awesome. Sounds great. I want to thank Hannah for joining us again on the podcast. It was wonderful getting to know her and to hear about her research that she's doing at the University of Kentucky. We definitely need more definition and training around those individuals that we have as e-helpers. And uh, I think she is on to something and hopefully we'll have some kind of training process in place. I know there are some other organizations doing it for mostly medical situations, but we need more training of those professionals that are assisting in the public schools. So hopefully we can get that done at some point. So thank you, Hannah, for bringing all of that information to us. And with that, thank you for listening. And please, please leave us a five-star review and say a few words about what you like about the podcast. Uh, we're always open to hearing your feedback. We do appreciate everything that you do for us. And with that, we will be back again next week. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. Mm -hmm.